This past March, the last Sunday in March, which is always the beginning date for the lectures at the Memphis School of Preaching, the theme was the New Testament Christian. And I was privileged to be a part of the lectureship and, of course, to receive one of the very fine books published by our brother Paul Sane, Sane Publications, who does a great work in that and so many other ways. And in that book, there are so many lessons that I think are so relevant to any time, but especially the time in which we find ourselves, where there is so much confusion and misunderstanding about New Testament Christianity and the misuse of the term Christian and the abuse of that term, that I thought it would be beneficial here if we simply selected not all, obviously, of those lessons from, from that book, but a certain number of those as a guide for a series of lessons on Sunday morning, perhaps about 20 or so, on a variety of subjects relating to New Testament Christianity. The New Testament Christian, for example, is joyful. The New Testament Christian has Jesus as the object of his faith. The New Testament Christian believes in a place called hell. That was my particular assignment. The New Testament Christian, this or that, various aspects of Christianity that I think are, are very important. And so I have determined to, to present, the Lord willing, over the next several weeks, and we may interrupt it for a particular reason or so, but, but the Lord willing, I want us to talk about some aspects of New Testament Christianity that are vitally important, absolutely crucial. But where should we begin? Where should we begin in that discussion? Well, I think the obvious beginning point is to begin with this question. What is a New Testament Christian? Or what is a Christian? Because if a Christian is truly a Christian, he is a New Testament Christian. Because it is the New Testament and only the New Testament that makes Christians. And it makes Christians only. But you know, if we were to conduct a survey in any number of people or among any number of people and ask that question, what is a Christian, you and I both know, we well know that we would get differing answers as to who a Christian is. But the question we need to ask is what is God's definition of a Christian? What is God's definition of a New Testament Christian? And the only way we can get that answer is by going to the New Testament. Because the New Testament clearly reveals all things relating to spiritual matters, including God's definition of what a Christian truly is, obviously. In Second Peter 1, a passage we've already studied in our series on Sunday nights, we know that his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his glory and virtue. It's all right here. Everything we need to know is right here. And we need to know the answer to the question, what is a Christian? And Paul reminds us in that very familiar text in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. We have it all right here, and the Bible 
enjoins upon us the obligation to prove all things and to hold fast that which is good. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 21. Prove or test all things. Therefore, we need to test Christianity in terms of what a Christian is. Paul in 2 Corinthians 13.5 said, Try your own selves, whether you are in the faith. Prove your own selves. How do we do that? Jesus reminded those to whom he spoke as he lived among men, You search the scriptures, because in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. John 5 and verse 39. Therefore, let us go to the Bible to answer the question, What is a Christian? God's definition of a Christian. And as we do, we ask this question initially. Is a religious person God's idea of a Christian? Is a religious person God's idea of a Christian? Think about it. The heathen are religious. There are those who offer their babies to crocodiles. The Chinese have a God shelf. They worship their ancestors. The Israelites themselves, as we well know, went into idolatry. Think about a statement that we find in the book of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 31. Remember what God said there through the prophet Jeremiah? And they have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my heart. To burn their sons and daughters in the fire to a false god, yes. Takes somebody pretty religious to do that. But obviously that was totally contrary to God's will. You remember the Apostle Paul when he came to Athens as recorded there in Acts chapter 17. Paul stood in the midst of them, verse 22, in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious, as the New King James renders it. You are very religious. How did he know that? He said, For I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. Oh, yes, a great many people are very religious. The religions of men, the denominations that have been founded by men and in the names of men and according to the creeds of men, are religions. And those involved, many of whom, if not most, are extremely sincere and very religious and extremely zealous. But denominationalism exalts creeds above the Bible. In Galatians 1, 8 and 9, remember already we have studied in Galatians again this morning, but though we are an angel from heaven, Paul said, should preach to you any gospel other than that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Let him be accursed. In Mark 7, verse 7, Jesus said, But in vain they worship me. How, Lord? Teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Not those here, but the commandments of men. In vain they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. And in verse 13 of that same chapter in Mark, making void the word of God 
by your traditions. How much clearer could the Lord have made it that the religions of men exalting the creeds and traditions of men, however religious those involved in those religions may be, that's not God's idea or definition of a Christian. So a religious person may not be God's idea of a Christian, and yet, listen to this, God's idea of a Christian must be someone who is religious. You can be religious and not be a Christian, but you cannot be a Christian without being religious. James 1, 27. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fathers and the widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. But he begins in verse 26, if any man thinks himself to be religious while he deceives or bridles not his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is vain. And then he describes in verse 27, as we just noted, pure religion. Oh yes, we have to be religious to be Christians. But we have to make sure the religion is pure. Let me ask this question then. Is a good moral person God's definition or idea of a Christian? Oh, a good moral person certainly may influence for good more than a vile person. That's obvious. And certainly we appreciate morality. Indeed, we appreciate morality. But the Bible, again, our standard for determining who a Christian really is, tells us that the Morality alone of an individual will not save him. Cornelius was a good man, a devout man, one who feared God with all of his house, Acts 10 describes him, who gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. And yet he had to hear and obey the gospel because his morality, his efforts would not continue to please God because the gospel was to go to the Gentiles and he had to obey it. He was not told by the angel who appeared to him to continue in his morality and his efforts to worship God as he had been doing. He said, send to Joppa for one Simon, whose surname is Peter, who shall tell you words by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And so morality alone wouldn't save Cornelius. He told us how he had seen the angel. This is Peter's account of it in Acts eleven thirteen and 14. He told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house and saying, Send to Joppa for one whose name, surname is Peter, who will what? Tell you words whereby or by which you will be what? Saved. Which also tells us that the word is the power of God to save us. Romans 1.16 makes that clear. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it, singularly, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so a good moral person alone is not God's idea of a Christian, yet Christians must be moral. Christians must be good people who live soberly and righteously and godly in this present age, Titus 2, 11 and 12. But now this question, is a person who believes in Christ, is a person who believes that Christ is the Son of God, God's idea of a Christian? 
Well, turn with me to John chapter 12, verses 42 and 43. And we can get the answer to that because here these verses describe some rulers of the synagogue. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, in Christ, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Let me ask you a question I've asked before. Do you believe someone can be saved who loves the praise of men more than the praise of God? Of course not. And yet that's what is said of these rulers of the synagogue. And it is also said of them that they believed in Christ. They believed he was who he claimed to be. But their belief would not move them forward to act upon that belief. They did not exercise obedient faith. And the faith that saves is the faith that obeys. And a faith that doesn't lead me to fully obey will not save. So a person may believe in Christ and still not be God's definition of a Christian, but, as with our other points, Christians must believe or have faith. You can't be a Christian without believing, but belief alone doesn't make you a Christian, in other words. But you have to have faith. Hebrews 11:6. without faith it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Oh, yes, I have to believe. John 8, 24, Jesus said, Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And so belief is absolutely essential. But we have to understand that in Scripture, and apparently so many do not, tragically, that belief is used in various ways. And We've talked about this before. But belief is used in a comprehensive way. That is, to include every other step that is required of man to become a New Testament Christian. It's not faith alone. Although sometimes the word believe is used to include the other steps of salvation. For example, John 3.16, as we've talked about it even recently. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now listen, John 12.42 and 43 says these rulers of the synagogue believed in him. John 3.16 says, whoever believes in him will be saved. The rulers of the synagogue believed in him. John 3.16 says, whoever believes in him will be saved. They were not saved. Therefore, John 3.16, when it says believe in him, must be a kind of belief that they didn't have. What kind is it? The kind that includes repentance and confession. And yes, as we shall see, baptism for the remission of sins. That's, either that's the case or the Bible contradicts itself and meets itself coming back, as we say. It doesn't. No, belief is sometimes used to include every other step of obedience. Sometimes it's used as a condition of salvation in and of itself. For example, Jesus said, He who believes and is baptized will be saved. It's very obvious that there Jesus didn't use belief in that comprehensive sense as it was used by him in John 3.16 because he used belief as a condition of salvation and coupled with it another essential condition of salvation, baptism. We also see those other conditions, repentance and confession, clearly taught in Scripture. And as we have said, 
It is not the S-O-M-E. It is not sum of God's word that is truth, but it is the sum, S-U-M, the total of God's word that we must accept as truth. And so a person may believe in Christ and not be a Christian, but he must believe in order to be a Christian. And now our next question, is a person who repents God's idea of a Christian? You know, many rebel against God until they're on their deathbed, and that's a very dangerous thing. We ought to obey God and do his will as soon as we learn it. And many times putting it off makes it much easier to continue to put it off until ultimately, until ultimately, there's no disposition left to repent because we can harden our hearts. Many people have misconceptions about what repentance is. Agony. Is repentance agonizing over sin? No. Godly sorrow? Is that, is that repentance? No. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says godly sorrow leads to repentance. You have to be sorry about what you're doing before you're going to do something about what you're doing, but that, that in itself is not repentance. Mourning over what we have done, just mourning over it, is not repentance. Judas Iscariot mourned over what he had done in betraying the Lord, but instead of repenting, he went out and hanged himself. He did not repent, tragically. He could have, but he didn't. Repentance is a change of mind. But repentance alone will not make you a Christian. And yet repentance is a necessary part of God's plan, which makes a person a true Christian. Again, the Lord said in Luke 13, 3, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Just as he said, believe that I am he or die in your sins, he said, repent of your sins or you will perish. Both are crucial. Acts 3.19, Peter said, repent and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. What? Repent and what? Turn again. The King James says, on the New King James says, be converted. But turn is a good translation because that's what is involved. It involves turning. It involves turning. It involves a change, a change of mind that leads to a change of life. You remember, you remember the illustration of the Ninevites that Jesus referenced in, in Matthew when he said the Ninevites repented at the preaching of Jonah and a greater than Jonah is here, Matthew 12. Well, what did they do? The Lord said whatever they did, it was repentance. I can go back to Jonah chapter 3 and I can see what they did. And what did they do? Jonah 3.8 says, But let them be covered with sackcloth, both man and beast, and let them cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn everyone from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Then two verses later in verse 10, Jonah or rather in Jonah 8.10, God saw their works, that they repented of their evil way. And God repented of the evil, as the King James says, which he said, or the catastrophe, the disaster he would bring upon them, which he said he would do to them, and he did it 
not. And so I can know what repentance is when I look at the example of Jonah and the Ninevites, because they what? Jonah 3, verse 8, and then I said 8.10, should be 3.10. Two verses later, then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he said he would bring upon them, as the New King James puts it, and he did not do it. But what did they do to repent? They turned from their evil way. Changed their mind, changed their lives. And the Lord Jesus Christ characterized that in Matthew 12 as what? Repentance. So I don't have to guess as to what repentance involves. Is a person who repents God's idea of a Christian? Repentance alone won't make one a Christian. But let's ask this question now. Is a person who confesses Christ to be the Son of God God's idea of a Christian? You know, when it comes to confession, there are so many who misunderstand what it means to call upon the name of the Lord. As in Romans 10, 13, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that is the process by which many tragically believe that we are saved from our sins. In other words, by prayer alone, the sinner's prayer, as it is uh, so often called. But when Paul says in Romans 10, 13, when he writes that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, is that prayer alone that he's advocating? Is it faith alone that he is advocating? What is it? What is it that he's advocating? Well, in Matthew 7, verse 21, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. So if saying, Lord, Lord, is equated with calling upon the name of the Lord, as many do equate it, the Lord said that is not sufficient. And that is not what calling upon the, Lord, the name of the Lord involves. Because not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, in other words, not everyone who believes calling on the name of the Lord is saying, Lord, Lord, is going to be saved, but it's going to require doing the will of my Father in heaven. And that same thought is expressed by the Lord in Luke 6, 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? And that is an apt description of what is taking place tragically all over this world of ours today, concerning so-called Christianity, calling on Lord, on the Lord through prayer and advocating salvation by that process, whereas the Lord denied it. Remember Saul of Tarsus who became the Apostle Paul? The Lord sent Ananias to him after he had told Saul to go into Damascus, and there it would be told him what he must do. And Ananias came to him and said, Why are you waiting? He was praying, remember? He said, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. That's what calling on the name of the Lord involves. Obedience, just as the Lord said in Luke 6, 46, just as he said in Matthew 7, 21. Don't call on me through prayer to be saved. Call on me through obedience to my will. And then... After you've done that, you have the privilege of calling upon me in prayer. A wonderful privilege that belongs to the child of God, to the New Testament Christian, and to him alone. And so confession alone is not what makes us Christians in God's sight, and yet confession is a part of the plan of salvation. 
Romans 10, 10, For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto, in the direction of salvation. But our confession is to be a continual one. Matthew 10, 32 says, Whoever confesses me before men, him will I confess before my Father in heaven. We're to make that initial confession, but that confession is also to be what? Continual by the lives that we lead. Back to John 12, 42 and 43, those rulers of the synagogue would not make that commitment. They would not confess him not only with their lips, but they would not confess him by their lives that were committed to him. Then this question. Is a person who's been baptized after a fashion God's idea of a Christian? Is sprinkling or pouring for baptism God's idea for baptism? No, the New Testament makes it clear. Or are you ignorant that all we who were baptized into Christ Jesus, Paul writes to Christians, were baptized into his death? Listen to it. We were buried with him through baptism into death. Buried. Sprinkling cannot be a burial. Pouring cannot be a burial. We were buried, therefore, with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we also should walk in newness of life. Colossians 2.12, Paul writes to those who had done this, saying, Christians, here's what you did. Having been buried with him in baptism, wherein you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who also raised him from the dead is a person, though, who was immersed or buried in baptism for the wrong purpose, God's idea of a Christian. What if a person is baptized because of remission of sins? In other words, I believe my sins have been forgiven, but I want to be baptized because it's a good thing to do. Or as some say, it's a commandment, but not a necessary commandment. And I still haven't figured that one out. <laughs> a commandment, but not a necessary commandment. What if I'm baptized believing that my sins have already been remitted? That's an improper purpose. What if I make a confession? I believe that God, for Christ's sake, has pardoned my sins, and now I want to be baptized. Again, I'm affirming that my sins have already been forgiven before, they have reached, before I have reached the blood of Christ, which is the only substance that can cleanse me from sin. Or what if I'm baptized simply to please some human Instead of God, a husband whose wife has been after him for some time and he finally says, I'm just going to go ahead and do this so that she'll leave me alone. What about a person who won't repent, as we talked about in class today? A drunkard says, I want to be baptized, but I have no intention of giving up my drinking. No, we must be baptized to obey and please God in the very manner that the Lord prescribed. A burial in water preceded by a faith that leads us to repent of our sins, to confess him as the Christ, and then to be buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins. For as many of you, he writes to those who had done this in Galatians, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Where are you when you've put on Christ? You're in Christ. How do you put him on? Paul tells us by inspiration in baptism. But a final question. Is every church member God's idea of a Christian? Will a person's name on the rolls of a denomination save? It takes more than that to make one a Christian. But what about even in the New Testament church? Will your name on the local rolls and the church directory, 
Will that save you if your name is not found in the Lamb's book of life in heaven? John 15, 2, Jesus said, Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh it away. A few verses later at verse 6 of John 15, If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Yes, we must be in Christ and following Christ in the church to which the Lord adds those who obey him as he has commanded us to do. And the Lord added to the church daily, Acts 2.47, such as should be saved. And so as we think about certain aspects of the New Testament Christian, we have to first of all make sure that we are Christians. The only kind of Christian that pleases God, the New Testament Christian, because the New Testament makes Christians, and no other book does. Christians and Christians only. We have to conform to God's definition of a Christian. Notice again what that divine idea or plan is. Believe with all of your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Hebrews eleven six, John eight twenty four. Repent of your sins, Luke 13, 3, or perish. Confess Jesus to be the Christ, Romans 10, verse 10. Be baptized for the remission of sins, Acts 2, 38. For the remission of sins, remember, to be in Christ, Galatians 3, 27. And then the Lord will add you on that occasion. As you come forth from that watery burial, cleansed not by the water but by the blood that is applied there, he'll add you to the church we read about in the New Testament where you are privileged then to live a good life, as we noticed earlier, and practice pure religion. What about you? Are you a Christian? We've defined it in the only way that it must be defined from the New Testament. Are you a Christian according to God's definition? Have you obeyed God's plan of salvation? Or even if you have, have you lost your way after obeying the gospel and can no longer say that you fit God's definition of a faithful child of God? Remember the Lord in Revelation 3 said, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Today, if you need to respond to the Lord's invitation, and it is he who invites, we plead with you to do that now and to come as we stand to sing to encourage you.